Hi-ho, this is Jordan, and you're listening to Drawing Controversy, a podcast about controversial cartoonists. And yeah, that's pretty much what this episode is about, a controversial cartoonist. It's that straightforward. The conversation you're about to hear is kind of like a spiritual sequel to my third episode about the webcomic Sinfest and its creator, Tatsuya Ishida. I'll link to that podcast episode in the show notes if you haven't already heard it. My guest for that episode was Bitter Corella. Shortly after we completed our interview back a few months ago, Corella recommended I do an episode on cartoonist Dave Sim and the comic Cerebus the Yardbart. I was interested in doing another episode on another significant cartoonist who simultaneously influenced and changed the comics landscape while also running their legacy into the ground. Corella had just the person in mind who could give me their insights. That brings us to our special guest today, Norman Rafferty, a graphic and games designer who's going to educate us all about his work and all things Dave Sim as well as Comicsgate, the Comic Creator's Bill of Rights, the other cartoonist Dave Sim feuded with, the legacy of Cerebus the Aardvark, and he'll also go over general problems in the comic industry. With all that to cover, let's just cut to the chase and welcome Norman. Norman Rafferty, thank you so much for joining me on Drawing Controversy. Thank you for having me. I first got to ask you, because I know you were dealing with it uh, when I first contacted you, uh, how was Worldcon? Oh, I had never attended a Worldcon before, so it was uh, it was a different perspective. It definitely was a mix of the old guard of science fiction, talking about a lot of the sort of old-fashioned stuff, along with a lot of the new ideas that are coming in. Uh, I, I think science fiction right now has a problem where all of the big franchises like Star Wars and Star Trek are technically like 30, 40, 50 years old. So they've kind of like blipped over social media and information technology. They're kind of missing that in their mythologies. So it's interesting to see that. It was good to attend. I've never seen one that had roundtables before. I mean, I could go on, but yeah, it was good. Well, and to back up a little bit, why don't you explain to people kind of like what your specialty is and what you like to illustrate and even what your foray into RPG games is. Okay. Well, I'm Norman Rafferty and I'm an angry indie. All right. I've been one of the founding members of Sanguine Games, where we publish stuff like Iron Claw and the Usagi Ojimbo role-playing game and Myriad Song, Vital Hearts, a bunch of other stuff. I started before that in the 1990s when I worked for Shadis, the independent gaming magazine uh, that we were lucky that we uh, started around the 90s, which was before Inquest. So we were one of the first magazines to talk about, hey, have you heard about this magic thing? We think it might be a big deal. Here are some of the cards that are in it and became one of the first magazines to list card listings and that exploded. And so I took what I learned from there and springboarded a lot into what I know, which is games. And uh, mostly we publish role-playing games. We did some tabletop stuff. We got one video game that's sort of out there. And I started with in the independent game magazine, whatever, like independent publishing. I've been following the creator's bill of rights and the idea of independent you know, voices, as well as independent creator's ownership since the 80s, which is a big deal if you're following the news like people complain about stanley and that kind of stuff anyway you know i've been doing this for about man it's already 2022 isn't it so for about 30 years and so i've seen a lot of things some good some bad well and maybe we should break down what the creator bill of rights is like what are some of the principles or what was the need for something like that to even exist 
Well, so like nowadays, like Avengers Endgame and like obscure Marvel characters like the Vision and She-Hulk are blockbuster hits. But back in the 70s and the 80s, and especially the 60s, creators were just doing work for hire and just signing on and getting the runaround. People like Jack Kirby, who created a lot of these seminal characters and defined the vocabulary, were not making any money. Like the X-Men movies, you don't see Chris Claremont's name mentioned at all, even though that's almost his entire brainchild. So around the 80s, there was the rise of something called the direct market. Before that, comic books were often sold on newsstands uh, or in other magazine outlets, but comic book stores showed up as an entity. And then they started making comic books that only went to comic book stores. Uh, Teen Titans, famous for Teen Titans Go, was a direct market title. It was sold, cost more money, but it had higher production value. George Perez, rest in peace worked on these titles, they were very popular, and this created the direct market. Once the direct market was created, you had independent comic book titles that would show up, like what we're going to talk about today, uh, Dave Simseribus, which was only possible because he could make a comic and get it in comic book stores. If he had to push that to a 7-Eleven or a newsstand, no, no one was going to buy that. This was something for you know a specific market. And as that became more popular, you then had the introduction of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in the early 80s. Kevin Eastman and Pierre Laird, whose title became a runaway success. And so a bunch of people got together who were angry indie publishers. I'm not sure if Scott McCloud led it, but Scott McCloud of Understanding Comics is the big voice behind it, had a summit in 1988 where they got together to talk about the Creator's Bill of Rights, which is still on Scott McCloud's webpage and still has frames, God bless him. It discusses the issues of that creators should basically be able to be able to get their work, reproduce their work, profit from their work, profit from ancillary. If someone makes a movie out of it, you should be able to get the money out of it. This was big, scary talk in 88. It was not something you did if you didn't want to get blacklisted by the industry, which was dominated by Marvel and DC. And several shakeups and internet technologies have happened since 88. But if we're talking about Dave Sim today, Dave Sim was easily the loudest voice behind this summit. And for many people then, and for some people today, is still the, the king of self-publishing. Speaking of gaming, you're familiar with John Kovalec, right? You know what? I should be. That name isn't ringing a bell at the moment. Dork Tower. Okay. Yeah, there's a cover of Dork Tower with Dave Sims' artwork on it, where Cerebus corrects a Dork Tower character by saying, there are no kings of self-publishing, there are just self-publishers, which is Dave Sim making fun of his title as king of self-publishers so for many people he's the he's the alpha and omega of all of this now can you tell me before i get into dave sim does this move for self-publishing for going right to comic book stores instead of the newsstand does that have anything to do with the famous comic codes authority or what were sort of like the legal regulations about comic books back in i don't know the middle 20th century by the 80s, the Comics Code Authority, which was established in the 50s to supposedly because comic books were corrupting the children and dominated a lot of the discussion. By the 80s, it wasn't unusual for a comic to come out without the Comics Code Authority. Dave Sims' Cerebus was published in Canada and never uh, established that. By the 80s, the Comics Code was on the way out and it would be gone by the grim and gritty 90s. I see. So then that does kind of transition to Dave Sim, Canadian cartoonist. 
what's the easiest explanation we can give to people? Like just assuming they never heard of the guy or like are only vaguely familiar with his works. Who is he? Like what really made him famous? And how would you explain the character of Cerberus the Aardvark? A Conan parody turned into the every horrible webcomic ever. I like that. I mean, literally, Dave Sims started as somebody who was contributing. Like the Comics Code Authority, I'm glad you brought that up, only applied to comic books. It didn't apply to magazines. Like famously, Mad was a magazine. These were larger print and often in black and white to control costs. So at the same time you had in the 70s for your Mad Magazine, you also had your Savage Sword of Conan and Red Sonia type titles, which were often in black and white artwork that was very well detailed. Service the Aardvark is very much a parody of Conan and Red Sonia. I mean, literally a parody of Conan and a parody of Red Sonia show up in the first year of Cerebus, and he fights both of them. Um, and, and later, Elric of Melnabonet, if you've heard of that, shows up. Like, it, it's literally just a parody of that. And it starts off as a bunch of kind of silly jokes with irreverent stuff with really good artwork. I mean, that's one thing that made it bubble up to the top was that it had good comic timing, good comic writing, and it came out on a regular basis. And it became a very silly parody comic. Like uh, eventually he started doing superhero parodies. Dave Sim did a Wolverine parody that got him sued by Marvel. Wolveroach, yes. Wolveroach, yes. And um, there's also, I like to point out, Dirty Flegel and Dirty Drew, who are two characters who literally talk exactly to Simity Sam, the Roach character who stands in as a superhero parody, and the long-running character of Prince Julius, who is literally Groucho Marx. Right. Don't the Three Stooges at one point save Cerberus's life? You were probably correct. I followed Cerberus off and on for many years. I, I believe it, because there's many specific parodies in the book. In fact, that's why I say webcomic. If you follow webcomics in the 2000s, it's a joke about a webcomic that starts as a gag-a-day thing. You know, like, like I still have affection for Sluggy Freelance, forgive me. You know, it starts as a gag-a-day comic of whatever the author thinks is funny. And then over time, because the author's been doing it for a while and they're kind of getting bored and their craft is getting better, they decide they want to delve into more serious storylines. Then, unlike Sluggy Freelance, the author eventually might fall over the deep end and get red-pilled and or something like bizarre happens to them. They start dismissing criticism, but they keep publishing it and grinding it forever, like the Sinfest comic we were talking about. You start to ask, who is this for? Their readership drops off, but the person who's making it totally blames everyone else for the readership falling off. It's like even though Cerebus at its height had 35,000 people reading it, when near the end, when they're below 3,000, something must have happened. You know, it's, it's not us. Uh, the, the rest of the world must be, it's the children who are wrong. And then eventually stumbles to the end. And then eventually you hear people recommending it like they're recommending Birth of the Nation or Triumph of the Will. It's like, that's got some good ideas in it. It revolutionized the medium. So by virtue of that, we have to acknowledge it, even if it's what it is. Well, I mean, uh, Dave Sims' service will be in the Guinness Book of World Records forever as the longest-running independent published comic book because he was in that window of time when that was possible. The direct market existed in the 80s. These days, do people buy comic books? And when people do buy comic books, we're talking about, like, one piece has thousands of pages, but it doesn't qualify because it's not indie. It's serialized in a magazine. Renee Teldemeyer and Dav Pilkey, you know, are very extremely popular cartoonists. 
Once again, they don't qualify. They're published by Scholastic, even though they're hugely popular and make lots of issues, they're technically not independent voices. It's this weird thing of where you'll always be praised for that. But I mean, what are we coming to praise is, is the question. So we did talk about a little bit about SinFest before we officially recorded. And that's because a little while ago, I had Mike Bitter Corella brief me on how SinFest started as an innocent enough, or I mean, edgy enough is probably the better term, edgy enough webcomic that was popular, even recommended by sites that I'm like, wait, really? After everything this guy would do, you're the ones recommending it. And it just kind of became like, kind of like you said, it kind of this self-indulgent, like, okay, now I'm done just making gag a day strips. I now have to make these deep convoluted storylines. And then that kind of became this window for showing regressive politics. And then what was interesting about, if I have the name correct, uh, Tatsuya Ishida with Sinfest is that the fans, the people who read the comics online, they kind of turned on him and kind of even they weren't buying what he was like putting out the stuff that was just like coded transphobia or like kind of attacks on feminism. And I think even Corella had pointed out that on Patreon, a person like Tatsuya Ishida, who's been around for decades, should be raking it in and was not. And that was kind of a symptom of how alienated an audience had been from his work. Yeah, they, they can't have more than 800 subscribers and probably have less because they, they keep those numbers public. It's definitely, definitely true of Dave Sim. Like I said, at the height of the uh, church and state arc uh, of the comic, which is when it became the most popular, 30,000 issues selling on a regular basis. Unheard of for an indie comic. Near the end, it was below 3,000 which is still in 2004 would still have been good for an indie comic. On the other hand, that's nothing compared to what Cerebus should be. Yeah, so then in getting into what exactly made the strip so controversial, we have the religious element of that. And how many issues in did that become like a motif or like a real theme of the comic? The comic lasts for about 300 issues, excluding rare stuff. The big turning point is issue 186. Okay. Um, before then, Dave Sim is doing weird indulgences. Like he introduces a character called Victor Davis, who is drawn to look like Dave Sim and is literally a stand-in for himself. I think it's after 186 that Dave Sim himself actually shows up in the comic. Like he's freaking Grant Morrison from Animal Man or whatever. He's just like in the character itself. But 186 is the issue uh, that has the infamous essay in it that describes how, um, women are um it, it's it's really terrible now defenders of it will tell you it's incoherent which i don't know how that's a defense but it basically just boils down to that women are creative voids who suck the life out of men not all of them just most of them the female void is what he called it if i recall Right, the female void. And it's not until issue 201 that he gives up on the pretense of a comic. And issue 201 is all essay. And it's the one where not only does he clarify that women are creative voids and that there's actually a demiurge adversary that's female that's trying to destroy the world. Not all women are creative voids, just most of them. And also black people might have no more value than dogs. It's really, really bad. It's not good. 
And that's where, like, like, he just loses everybody. Like, I was impressed he still had anybody at that point. But yeah, that's where it basically drops off. And it's also that when I said it's like that webcomic, it's like a lot of people might have been reading a webcomic on inertia, but when the person finally did something that made everybody quit, these days I call that canceling. But a lot of times it was just, look, a lot of people were here out of inertia waiting for it to get better. And this was just the excuse for everybody to cancel their subscriptions. This was the issue. This was just the point of people said, I'm not reading this anymore. Or people said, hey, I can't believe you read that story or comic or webcomic. So what do you mean? Didn't you see this? And they looked up, oh, I, I better like unfollow. And that's just the big catalyst right there. And been doing some research on it. And Dave Sims never recanted. In fact, when I compare this to what you see in other webcomics and YouTubers, he has the YouTube defense for it. Like he said, like, hey, I defend this essay. By the way, I'm removing it from future reprints of that issue. Even though issue 186 that still has the essay in it, that's sold out. Everybody loved that essay where I first talked about women being creative voids. But I'm removing it from the reprints of this for unrelated reasons. And, and I'll put this on the internet, which I'm also not on. So yeah, it's like, like literally every stereotype that you hear about web creator, Dave Sim did it in the 90s and the 2000s. Yeah, really revolutionizing the field there. I really want to just emphasize to anyone who had never heard of that or is like just trying to picture what you're saying. It's just like, imagine you're reading a standard comic about an aardvark superhero. It's parody of Conan the Barbarian and then like has some more serious arcs as you go through issues. And then all of a sudden now it's the Victor character, the character that was sort of a cheap stand-in that writes this manifesto, right? The whole about the female void. Well, and then later it just, it literally the comic stops. And like issue 201 is where it's called the tangents issue where Dave Sim, and, and this is where like, I don't see how anyone can still have respect for Dave Sim. He abandons the comic format completely. His issue to explain to his audience who came here to watch a funny aardvark stab people with a sword and, and speak in the third person, do funny stuff and Wolverine or whatever, he had to interrupt the whole comic and present this entire essay explaining his point of view, you know, that it, this was so important that he had to stop the comic for it. And it's, it, it's just terrible. It's like, like people talk about how, how Dave Sim is some sort of creative genius. And in 300 issues of a comic book, especially one where he regularly employed assistants, like Gerhard was his regular assistant, there's gonna be some nuggets in there that are pretty good. And some people will talk about some bits of Jocka's story being pretty good. But there's a lot of it that's incoherent, a lot of it that's filler, and some of it is what I just mentioned. So who were some of the people who worked with him? I think you mentioned one of them, but I think another person who came to mind was the woman he was actually married to for some time, who was his publisher and was key to investing in the his whole self-publishing, like that whole stunt or like starting off that, starting off the whole comic at all. Oh, and, and early on, she tried to do some art duties. This, this is mentioned in the editorial columns of the early issues. That's how Farmer Khan went, where he mentions that he asked her to try and do some spot or inking. Back then, we didn't have flood fills. If you wanted an area filled with black, you had to sit there with a brush and do it, and do it nice, or you'll get bubbles and stuff. But eventually, he hired Gerhard pretty early on, who was his regular assistant for almost all of the issues. Uh, I know he had guest editors who quit, 
the first editor quit after issue 186. And Diana Schulz, who was a famous editor, worked on several titles, quit after issue 201. I'm impressed people were still working with him. Eventually, uh, and once again, you've heard it before, people talk about how the Anne Rice novels got, the vampire novels got terrible after Anne Rice fired her editor. The new J.K. Rowling books don't have editors. And it's like people talk about how terrible they are. Dave Sim fired his editor. He was too indie for editors and readership dropped. Yeah, and the person I mentioned, I think her name was Denny Lober. And that, that was probably the same same old story. Yeah, Denny was his was his wife. And they divorced. And I'm not I don't want know what the details are. I don't think you know necessarily that's important. I just I'm impressed people still work with him. In fact, one thing I was doing research for this, I found a lot of correspondence on uh, Al Nickerson's site. God bless you, Al. You're still maintaining a tripod site uh, today. A lot of correspondence about the business and about the issues of that kind of stuff. And it's all written in 2005. And, and one thing that amazed me about it is like, it's, it's reasonable discourse. People get a little catty, but it's also talking about the realities of comics in the 90s and the 2000s. Dave Sim is there. He's coherent. All of his statements make some sort of logical sense. He's speaking from experience. And the entire time I'm reading is, is this is the guy who wrote Tangents. Tangents, okay. You know, like, like this is the guy, um, but it's also worth noting that anybody Dave Sim does business with is cis head white guy. So um, yeah. make of that what you will. Yeah, it, 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 it's, uh, it, it gets kind of uncomfortable. It, it's really, I mean, I don't know if you want to talk about the business thing. So let, let, let's, let's not get too off on a tangent. Right, I know. I mean, because I think people can look at any links I include to find out some really terrible choices he made in his personal life that reflect even more poorly on him outside of his comic. But staying on that topic, did you know that he wanted to fight Jeff Smith, the creator of Bone, in a boxing match due to some kind of perceived rivalry? Well, I was reading Jeff Smith's comic at the time. And so, yes, Dave Sim alleged that Jeff Smith was a puppet of his wife. And uh, I mean, we're living in a post-Will Smith world. And Jeff Smith, the creator of Bone, called him to task on it and says, what are you doing insulting my wife? It has nothing to do with anything. And Dave Sim threatened to fist fight him. And Jeff Smith, of course, turned him down. This is also an echo, I think, of like what you would see with a lot of goon culture, like uh, something awful, a troll type crowd, where they would threaten to get violent because they know that other people aren't going to call them out on it. It's a really terrible and disgusting move by Dave Sim to do that. And once again, it's like one of the things like in the bigger issue, he can talk business and he ran a business for 30 years and still runs it today. So, you know, he wouldn't still be in business if he didn't know how to run business. But there's that other side where the switch flips and he just turns into the horrible goon. Yeah, it would seem so. And how does Dave Sim personally tie into what was known as Comicsgate or how, how do we even explain Comicsgate, what it was and when it happened? So speaking of red pill and that sort of thing, there's a bunch of people like, okay, I'm an angry indie. Okay. I believe my stuff is great. I mean, it's fantastic and everybody should give me one. Now, naturally, you could look at my stuff and say, oh, I don't know about this. Okay, but every indie, you know, who self-publishes wants to get out in the world. And it's an uphill battle. Like, you know, people want Fortnite. They want, you know, or they want fan comics. You'll see people complaining about that. So it's an uphill battle. So after a while, it's easy to make excuses of why you're not getting public, you know, popular. Like, why aren't people, I'm a genius. Why aren't people liking my stuff? And so speaking of Bitter Corella and the Hugo nomination. Right. A while ago, there were some people called the Sad Puppies 
who uh, came upon the belief that the reason why people didn't like their science fiction novels, despite the fact that they were throwbacks to the 40s and 50s, and we already have those, that obviously there was a woke conspiracy keeping them down. Comicsgate, by taking their name from Gamergate, are a bunch of people who believe that there's a weird conspiracy that there's a bunch of women and alternative people you know, and minorities keeping them down, which once again, as you can see, totally lines up with Dave Sims' philosophy of women and minorities will only drag you down. Yeah, no, and everyone, if they had the choice, they would be just a cishet white guy or something. Well, but no, Dave Sims goes even further and says you can't choose. Dave Sims' anti-transgender, like, so all the way. Like, a woman could never hope to be a man. Wow. It, it, it's a twisted parody. In fact, the ending of Cerebus is an anti- transgender screed well of course it is <laughs> i didn't go that far but i mean yeah I i'm sure it is so Comicsgate was basically grew out of the idea that a bunch of people decided and so naturally that if you give if someone's publishing a comic book and describes himself as a comic skater giving them money somehow makes this woke conspiracy mad even though we're, we're talking about comic books. Who reads comic books anymore? I mean, I love them, but they are so far down the radar these days. Like they're selling in the thousands. They are not, you know, the days of X-Men and Teen Titans are way gone. But there's some guys who will put out a crowdfunding, say, buy me to own the libs. And one of the big leaders of this is Ethan Von Skyver who publishes Cyberfrog. You missed terrible comic books from the 1990s. Skyver has you covered. Okay. And he regularly makes money because he'll say, I need a crowdfunding to support my issue. By the way, I remember every dollar you give me makes a liberal cry and gets in fights regularly with people. It's good theater. So in 2018, Dave Sim, who has worked for hire, I believe he's worked on Fables. Any excuse for effort to hate on Fables? Okay. That's right. I hate Fables. It's on the record. Moving on from there. Dave Sim worked on Fables. Dave Sim got hired to work on the uh, Cyberfrog to write uh, stuff for that. But unfortunately, during the correspondence, apparently they decided to, it's, it's like these jokes write themselves. Like, you know, it's a joke that if you want to shut down two libertarians, you just ask them what the age of consent is. Oh, I'll use that one next time. I didn't know that. Yeah, oh no, it, it's it, it's a running joke, but I didn't invent it, so I don't have to get right for it, but yeah. Okay. Naturally, Dave Sims starts bringing up some big anecdote about how he took a 14-year-old girl across state lines uh, and then took lewd photos of her. But no sex happened, not until later, not until she was legal, but admitted all of this stuff in print. It was so embarrassing that he got fired from Cyberfraud. And that was what I was thinking, like, okay, maybe I should not mention that, but like, hey, you say it, it's part of this whole story. I'll, I'll be mean. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I mean, I'll be mean about it. He, he, it's public that, yeah, you can, don't believe, you know, look, look at this kind of stuff. No, yeah, he did literally say that. I'm sure he has his own side of it. Right. Well, no, and it's kind of like, who's that guy? The the John K, John Cricks, uh, John Crispo. John Crick Pendleson, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the Ren and Stimpy guy where it just became, I mean, it happened post Me Too, but like, we all know that, no, we all know now that he had like two teenage, I put in big, scary quotes, girlfriends who were really just like young. Well, I, and these are real people who are working today. So I'm glad that, they, that they've overcome that. And I know some people who, who worked with, and it, see, speaking as the angry indie person. Yeah, that's the topic of another episode, I guess. Well, 
somewhat related to this. I mean, I'm bringing up the angry India agenda. Like I think that like everybody, you are living in a miracle period right now where, uh, you know, they're trying to close the doors on you, but right now self-publishing has wonderful opportunities. You can get a title on Amazon or one bookshelf or a bunch of other self-publishing forms in minutes and be accessible to dozens, if not thousands of people way, way different than it was in the nineties. And one reason like, I bring this up is because you talk about Me Too. There are these aggressions we don't talk about. Like on the one hand, I was a big fan of the comic books legal defense fund, not related, but also the creator's bill of rights. On the other hand, when I do research about this, it's all these same nerdy, straight white guys, many of whom, if you dig into their bios, are very much you know, they're they're alt-right leaning, they're they make anti-feminist statements, they talk about you know, how they did things with underage girls. It's really creepy. And Scott McCloud mentioned in his many books of understanding comics and reinventing comics that he was worried that the many barriers to people getting into the industry would keep a lot of creative people out. Dave Sim was unusual that he was creative, he had business savvy, and he was stubborn. And so he managed to overcome all of those obstacles and get in. But there may have been other people thwarted by people like Dave Sim and other people because they deem them not worthy. I mean, because Dave Sim would tell you that women aren't worthy of it. But like literally what you just mentioned, Dave Sim literally saying that Jeff Smith's comic is somehow, the bone, which people love, is somehow less worthy because a woman was somehow controlling Jeff to make it. Where, where do you come up with that? <laughs> like barf. Because Dave Sim is terrible. I already mentioned that Dave Sim said he took the essay that got him all the trouble out of the reprints. And I was reading through his, his 2005 correspondence. Dave Sim is a businessman. And that's, in fact, why we bring up Comicsgate. The Comicsgate guys are businessmen. They mention Comicsgate because they make money off of it. If they were offered more money to shut the hell up about it, they would shut the hell up about it. This is the dark side of indie, and, and I always hesitate to mention it, but it's like when we talk about independent creators' voices and how important it is for everyone to be heard, there are some people that we don't want to hear from, and uh, that's a huge thorny issue that even I wrestle with today because who is the authority on who gets to be in or out there? And you'll always see this thing with guys like Dave Sim and the Sinfest guy. We'll argue their work is important, and it's worthwhile because it's popular, by the way, please ignore the fact that it's not popular. It's popular, but popular enough with the right people. They kind of want to come off as more powerful than they really are. They're salespeople. You can trust them as much as you can trust any salesperson. They're a used car salesman. I know this is unpopular and I'm publishing because the voice no one wants to hear. By the way, it's also popular because people give me money for it. It's that silent majority type thing. It's that, you know, it's that, you know, like I said, the comics gate people argue that, no, people really want our stuff. For some reason, they're not buying it because there's a liberal media that's stopping it and and it's all smoke and mirrors it it's uh right, right now you have a narrow period where you can get in because man the industry that dave sim was in was not friendly to other kinds of creators what was the end result kind of fallout from Comicsgate? was it any similar to gamergate Comicsgate's not a thing Comicsgate steals its name from gamergate like they're all hucksters. They were all hucksters. It's all like a scam. Comicsgate put their name on it by once again a bunch of indie guys like Eric von, you know, sorry, Ethan von Skyver, claiming obviously I would be more popular. There's some kind of woke mob that keeps me down. It's the same thing with the sad puppy. That's why I say it's not a thing because it, it's a delusion. They tell people buy my comic 
to make liberals cry. And that's always been a selling point throughout the years. And it's always going to be a selling point. Like really, when you talked about SinFest, like I don't know who's donating to it. I'm guessing some people are donating to it because they like the fact that it makes liberals mad. They don't care what's in it. And that's how he gets that number. He's right at that threshold of makes enough people mad that enough people throw him $1. Yeah, and and I think just to clarify, I think Gamergate, from what I remember, that happened, might have happened as far back as 2014, but like where the ethos of it was, you get these violent, angry nerds, or I mean, I feel like that's even too kind, but what they're saying publicly is we're going after people because there is a clear problem in gaming journalism, and we're all for ethical standards, and what they're really doing is they're violently attacking the fact that their space is no longer just for them or is like technically inclusive or trying to be inclusive to other people. So was it Comicsgate? So maybe not a thing, but was it sort of built off the same framework? Well, to flip this around and go back to Dave Sim, who famously feuded with Gary Groff from the Comics Journal, because Gary Groff is another angry publisher who was very angry. The late 1980s and early 90s saw the speculator boom in comics. If you've been on eBay, you can see all the comic books that people lovingly bagged in the 80s and 90s that are worthless because they had variant covers. Eventually, this resulted in Diamond dominating the industry as it does today. That Diamond a bunch folded and ruined a bunch of stuff. And people mad at him. And of course, I was making fun of Dave Sim's proclivity that when Dave Sim wants to write an essay and publish it, he can do whatever the hell he wants. But if anyone wants to interview him, he has to see the interview list in advance, all the questions be faxed, and all of his responses must be duplicated exactly the way he said. But this isn't new. Like famously, Steve Ditko, also an alt-right leaning person, retreated from the media ages ago because he didn't want to be misrepresented and so refused interviews and refused to talk to anybody because they would do nothing but misrepresent him and so no. And speaking as the angry indie person, gaming journalism is terrible. Journalism is terrible. Gaming journalism, entertainment journalism, there's so many people out there, like speaking of the market today, you'll see the YouTube videos, which have the the clickbait headlines. People talk about the popular games like Among Us and Fortnite because they know those will get hits. Like if you're an indie person, they're not going to talk about you because you won't. And a video talking about Among Us will get hits. Then there are the people who pay for it. Uh, this podcast sponsored by Raid Shadow Legends. Raid Shadow Legends. We're bankrolled by a billion-dollar corporation. No one says anything bad about it. It's that environment you go into. That's the realistic market. And journalism is biased against you because you're an angry indie. No one's heard of, so you're not going to clickbait. If you're anything like me, you're telling, you're trying to tell some sort of underserved or rare story that, by definition, no one cares about. It, it's rare. It's it's not. Avengers. It's not Star Wars. No one cares. The Gator people got angry because it's like, how come no one wants to cover my incredibly bad alt-right red-pilled story that's a retro throwback to what we made fun of in the 90s of big-breasted snow owl women with wasp waists? Like, no one wants to talk about my comic. There obviously must be a conspiracy against it. And, uh, And like I mentioned, it's that dual conspiracy of, I'm selling thousands of issues, but somehow I'm not popular. You know, it, it, it's like a page out of the fascist playbook. We both have a popular mandate, but we're unpopular because there's a conspiracy of certain people keeping us down. 
it's ugly and we hate it. And um, like I said, you see it play out with the sim in the past and you still see it today. So it, it, it's, it, it just happens again. Well, and I want to go to um, sort of more of a final section, or at least something I definitely want to make sure to address is the comic book legal defense fund. It's something we've just mentioned on and off and during this conversation. But my first question is, what is this legal defense fund? And do you have any personal relationship with it? Well, so around the 80s, comic books, they used so there was a rash of articles, biff, bang, pow, comics aren't for kids anymore. Because we started seeing violent stuff like The Watchmen and Dark Knight Returns, which continue to color comic book discourse today. And this started the 90s grim and gritty era where, you know, oh, now what if superheroes said bad words? And, you know, what if people actually got killed? This kind of stuff was already happening in comic books, but by now the Comics Code Authority was gone. Image Comics appeared, speaking of the creator's Bill of Rights, you know, you had Todd McFarlane, I'm going to write a story about a character from hell. I wouldn't have been allowed to do this back at Marvel, but now I'm going to do it. We're going to have like all kinds of stuff and hockey players show up and bullets, people, characters with guns shooting each other, stuff that editorial mandates wouldn't let. And so the 90s turned into, everyone makes fun of the big pouches and the big guns, but that was the era. And there was also a comic that turned into a movie later, Vile Rodica, which was like there's comics like Faust and Valrotica that are just like the superhero, like angry indie, even more extreme, like X-rated violence, like, like, you know, guts, gore, horrible topics. I mean, people forget about The Crow. Are you familiar with The Crow? That name really stands out. I'm trying to remember where I've heard it. So the concept of The Crow is that a guy's girlfriend gets violently raped and then killed and then raped again. Okay, maybe you missed that one. Well, people forget that, but that's the plot of the comic. That's the plot of the movie. That's the plot of the franchise. They made a television series out of it. But what happened was because you had this kind of thing, and of course, there were some people saying, well, won't someone think of the children? You had the direct market shops I already mentioned. And so what happened was there was a famous case where somebody's comic book store, somebody said their kid somehow bought an issue of Violotica from the comic book store although allegedly it was an adult bought it and gave it to the kid and said later and you know this is related to your satanic panic this was like another kind of satanic panic people are selling porn to children remember this recurring theme somehow children are getting access to porn so comic book stores started getting shut down this was an easy thing for uh, you know politicians to do it was like comic books are for nerds so who cares it's direct market shop all these sell is comic books if it gets shut down like no one cares and so the comic books legal defense fund started, which was uh, an organization people could put money into to start a legal fund to help defend independent comic book shops and creators from any lawsuits trying to shut them down for, you know, if you want to tell a comic book about transgender stories, maybe we'll consider that pornography. Comic books are for children. Therefore, any adult concept you put in a comic book is marketing adult materials to children therefore you should be shut down and prosecuted under obscenity there was a time period where uh, i think it was antarctic press they would publish a comic book in canada ship it to the united states but you couldn't ship it back to canada because canada had anti-obscenity laws even though it was printed in canada and shipped because it was violent material and all comics for minors and this affected like us in the late 90s was there there would be like you might get your stuff confiscated the border like if i published a role-playing game and it's got blood in one of the pictures in it it might not be able to cross the canadian border 
So uh, this was a bigger issue in the 90s. I won't say it's not an issue today, but the comic book legal defense fund, I mean, I've got issues with them today because I think they, they largely fell apart because they didn't really support creators' rights. The issues they're complaining about largely expired as comic books became mainstream. Comic books became less violent. I mean, they're still violent, but it's off screen. It's all PG-13 now. Comic books are violent. And th there's a lot of creators' rights issues. I will take issues with what happened to Alan Moore up and down, left and right, because some terrible things happened to him and his projects in the 2000s. And nobody defends that. Well, and just to slow down a little bit, the Legal Defense Fund, it ostensibly exists to defend any creator, any comic book illustrator, writer who suddenly finds themselves under fire because people are accusing them of breaking, I don't know, obscenity laws or suing them for maybe whatever moral panic-infused reason that suddenly this legal defense fund jumps in. But, and I think I also we shouldn't ignore what happened to someone like Alan Moore. I mean, there's a reason, right, why he does not, aside from the fact that most of them aren't very good, that he does not want his name on any movie adaptation, any TV adaptation of his work, right? Oh, he's had his name removed. Uh, the, the major case is The Watchmen. Speaking of the creator's Bill of Rights, which I later realized was signed in 88, Watchmen was 86. And so Alan Moore signed a contract that he thought that he thought eventually the rights to Watchmen would revert back to him and Dave Gibbons, that he was under that understanding that it would. And you may, if you're following comics, you may have noticed that for many years, Watchmen was its own separate title. Yeah. And what happened was very recently... They started doing spinoffs of The Watchmen, and now Batman and Dr. Manhattan hang out together. Oh, it's so gross, I know. <laughs> uh, right, and, and mix and match. They, they just incorporated The Watchmen and all of Alan Moore's stuff, like Promethean and Armstrong, into the major universe. Um, despite, and 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 people wonder why Alan Moore is retreated from the media. Once again, we talk about the cranks retreating from the media. He was under the understanding that the rights of the character revert to him. But, but no one, you know, like, like that's a contractual issue. No one fights for that. Alan Moore is really the last gasp of the, the work for hire era. Because, I mean, when Mike Mignola showed up with Hellboy in 1990, that's the first Hellboy title. That's how old we are. Hellboy's 1990. Yeah. That he retained the creator's rights to that. And thus, when that became a minor hit, it has three movies and some cartoon spinoffs. Uh, he reaped all the benefits from that. Well, and as I understand it, what really got Alan Moore screwed was that they kind of said, well, you know, we're going to release your 12 comic books of Watchmen. And then once those go out of print, then you get the rights, you get bigger profits, something. But DC got around that by just, okay, we're going to combine them all into this one graphic novel book and keep releasing it. And I saw someone like, I forget, some video explaining like, yeah, Watchmen is one of the least valuable comic books in existence mostly because they intentionally crank that stuff out and, and i think if i understand you correctly you're saying it's those types of issues there isn't a comic book legal defense fund to really fight for getting back to the day of sin issue uh, going back and doing research because i was you know i'm of course a big fan of creators rights and you know these days you see disney making empty concessions that they'll say like for example the end of the guardians of the galaxy movie howard the duck owned by steve gerber i was confused by that yeah yeah, Steve Gerber sued for years to get the rights back to this character. Now he's dead. So putting it, you know, like, yes, thank you for putting his name on the character long after it freaking mattered. But I think the Superman movie came out in 79. They finally gave Siegel and Schuster some of their due. But yeah, it, it's, uh, you know, like creators getting their due is very important. 
I apologize. We start. I got so angry. Well, you did say this tied back to Dave Sim of it all. Thank you. Dave Sim would talk a lot in his essays about ethics over legality. Once again, 2005 essays, way after tangents, where he talked about like what might what the publisher might be contractually obligated to do is different from what they're legally obligated to do. Like if you publish a comic book, what rights do the inker have? What rights does the letterer have? Can Todd Klein, who lettered Sandman, reproduce a Sandman comic book because he did the lettering? Can he veto other stuff like that? Naturally, these agreements are issued in the contracts. But I mean, these were the issues they were discussing. Like, shouldn't Todd Klein be allowed to put on his website that this is my lettering, like a page from Sandman that I did? Can they deny him doing that or that sort of thing? And these I thought were, you know, valid creators issues. But, you know, on the one hand, I agreed with all of that. On the other hand, that's kind of like, I'm wondering how this stuff weighs in 2022. Like these don't seem to be the issues that a lot of people are having in 2022, where fan fiction is a thing. People are posting YouTubes where they, you know, you have the clips. We're in the Let's Play era where someone shows you an entire video game while narrating over it. And this is, you know, considered a mainstream thing. So it's an interesting era that, that we live in. And these were the things they were mad about then. And I'm, I'm not sure they apply today in this, in this digital world. So uh, I'm sure guys like Scott McCloud would have a lot more to say about them. So then kind of to wrap things up, just as yourself, an independent illustrator, game maker, person in this sort of industry, have you personally been dealt with any legal issues or anything that kind of maybe where you like had to stand up for your own creator rights? Well, I, I have been involved in a couple tussles that because they went to court, I'm not going to talk about them. Not anything major. Uh, I always do contracts with folks so we can be above board. I will say that I was publishing in the 90s and the 2000s, and Diamond Alliance Publishing is a blight upon the landscape that everything everyone tells you about them that is horrible is absolutely true, and they've only gotten worse. There was some talk during the COVID that DC and Marvel wanted to start their own distributors. They tried that in the 90s. Like, literally, I'm reading Dave Sim and the Creator's Bill of Rights and say, creators should have the right to choose a distribution method. By the way, Diamond can refuse to list you. Like Diamond controls over 90% of both the comic books and the hobby, like the board game market. And they can just fly out reviews. I have emails from Diamond saying, we're not even going to list your title in our catalog, but they'll list me in the catalog, but they'll never fulfill the order. Like you order my Iron Claw book and then the comic book shop gets the orders. It'll say Iron Claw unavailable. They don't say why, they just say it was unavailable. And it was unavailable because they never asked me for it. Like, like I never got a request. They literally went to the same warehouse. They picked up other stuff. They just didn't pick mine up because they didn't feel like it. And any comp guy who's still in running a comic book shop will tell you that. And that's one thing that stuck with me with the Creator's Bill of Rights. And I said, choose the method of distribution. Well, if the distribution people don't want to list you, I mean, that seems a little like funny because people say, well, would Amazon ever do that to you? And no, actually, Amazon will list all of my products, including ones that have been out of print. Because we live in the flip side era of this now where you can order almost anything you want off of the internet. I'm actually at the you know, opposite problem of where Amazon will list me, but they'll post a ridiculous price that uh, I can't possibly sell it to you for because I would lose money on it. Well, I think it's ridiculous enough. It's You've been brought to the point where you have to defend Amazon. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's, uh, well, you, if you order my stuff from Amazon, you get a different message saying why it's not available. It's because I would lose money on the sale. I don't care if Amazon told you that's how much it was, you know. These are real issues because like, like we, we've, got, we've gone from 
yes, the angry creator, I, you know, like I'm moving away from Marvel and DC, I choose to be delisted. But, you know, if the distributors are refusing, if, if I choose these guys and they refuse to list me or rip me off, did I really make a choice? And, and that's where we should be using our collective bargaining uh, and, and our, our trade unions and associations together to, to work to bring everyone higher. That's why I say right now, you are in this narrow window where eBooks on Amazon still make money. Uh, thank you, OneBookshelf.com for being so awesome. Uh, also, shout outs to Studio Two and Atlas Games who also run digital distribution. They're fantastic. If it wasn't for those people, I wouldn't be in business. And today you've got stuff like Gumroad, itch.io, Steam that will take almost any, you know, anybody. And today is, you know, like while this window still exists, because they're trying to shut it, people are constantly complaining about the walled garden on the Apple store. As long as those other windows I described are still open, it's a glorious age for self-publishing. And I think it's great that we see all these independent voices. I think it's fantastic what Dana Simpson and Renee Telgemeier uh, and other indie authors or, 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 in, or new voices are really capable of and being heard. It's fantastic what you can get in marketplaces today. Yeah, I mean, it's the funny part of where we go, like, let's put behind all these people who are like, you know, these angry white boys who, it's weird, they had fun, then they grew old, then they grew bitter, and we don't need any more Scott Adams. That's the dark side of independent or creator ownership. Either celebrate the newness or, or get off the stage. Yeah, it's fair enough. Well, with all that in mind, Norman, thank you so much for coming on here, telling us all about yourself, what you know about Dave Sim, this whole comics publishing world. Is there anything you'd like to promote or just let people know where they can find you? Well, I work for sanguinegames.com, where we publish a lot of role-playing games, especially Iron Claw and Myriad Song. We're lucky enough to work with angry indie Matt Howarth, who has written several comics for us in the Myriad line, which is uh, new wave sci-fi. I like it, obviously. And we make games and stuff. Uh, you can see us at many shows. Uh, we should be at the Midwest Fur Fest in December. We're usually at the big ones like the Gen Con and the Origins. So you can see us there. And uh, yeah, buy our stuff. All right. Thank you so much. And we'll be sure to check you out. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to another installment of Drawing Controversy. Drawing Controversy is a podcast created, edited, produced, and written by me, Jordan LHH. Theme music is by Mikhail Elish. Cover artwork is by Keshav. Follow at Drawing Controversy on Instagram, at Drawing Contrav on Twitter, and we'll see you in two weeks.